0: morning. Come on now, good morning. You guys didn't drive in like 200 degree weather to fall asleep on me, did you? All right, well, it was was August 11th, 2013, and it was a literal mountaintop experience. We were just outside Winter Park, Colorado, and the one thing more stunning than the setting was the woman I was marrying. During our ceremony, you guys, it was picture perfect. It was raining in the distance, so there's a rainbow. And there's these horses out, like center frame, just running. During the vows, this is real, a hummingbird came and drank out of the flowers that were in Alex's hand. Like just the perfect, breathtakingly beautiful moment. But do you know what happened after the wedding? Real life. Happened. We had to go back to class. We had to get jobs. The problem with mountaintop experiences is that at some point you have to come down, right? You have an amazing vacation, but you have to go back. You have an amazing night with friends, but people have to go home and get to bed so they can get up and go to work tomorrow. And you have a powerful encounter with God, but you know this, it never lasts. No matter how amazing that experience is, you always find yourself walking down the mountain and back into the mundane. In today's passage, we learn how we move from the mundane to the mountaintop. It's found in Mark chapter 9. Open up your real Bibles to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, this is what has been historically referred to as the transfiguration, it's where we get the phrase mountaintop experience. If you remember back to two weeks ago, everything changed in the book of Mark. Jesus, for the first time, explicitly said he was going to be killed. And so the entire gospel of Mark shifts. One Chapters 1 through 8 shift now to chapters 9 through 16. So Jesus says that he's going to be killed, but then in the same breath... Look at chapter 9, verse 1. If you're there, say nice and loud, there. And he said to them, that's Jesus, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Just to lay down my cards, I've never known what to do with this verse. At first glance, it looks like Jesus promised that the second coming of Christ would happen during the lifetime of the disciples. Obviously, we know that didn't happen. So liberal scholars have historically pointed to this verse to say, see, if Jesus was wrong here, what else was he wrong on? You can't trust the words of Jesus. Ironically and gloriously, this verse proves just the opposite. In all the Gospels, Jesus says this verse right before what we're going to study today, the transfiguration. Look down, uh, look again at verse 1. It says, And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Well, we're about to see that it's going to be only Peter, James, and John that Peter later in his life will describe as the day the Lord Jesus came in power. 2 Peter 1, 16, referring to the transfiguration. You see, Jesus' promise in verse 1 is about to be fulfilled in verse 2, which proves, Christian, you can trust the words of Jesus. So look at verse 2. Everyone there? Okay. And after six days. Why does Mark mention six days? Mark rarely gives such precise chronological data. The only other time he refers to the number of days regarding an event is the resurrection that happened after three days. We'll keep reading, verse two. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain. So see the scene, this is Mount Hermon still. It's 9,000 feet above sea level. It can be seen from every part of the Jordan Valley. Verse 2, he led them up a high mountain by themselves. It was an exclusive encounter. Where else do we see six days, a high mountain, and an exclusive encounter? When God gave the law to Moses at Mount Sinai. And wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandments, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua and Moses went into the mountain of God, and he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up to the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the mist of the cloud. So when God gave the Old Testament law, he did so by calling out just Moses after 6 days on a high mountain speaking from a cloud. Now in verse 9, uh, Mark chapter 9, Jesus calls out Peter, James and John after 6 days on a high mountain and look down at verse 7, and a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. What is Mark so, not so subtly communicating? Loved one, Jesus is the return of God's manifest presence. Point one. <clears throat> Let's just do a little theology here. True or false, God is everywhere at the same time. Yes, gloriously true. Psalm 139, seven. Oh, where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I descend down to Sheol, you are there. That's what we call God's omnipresence. Omni comes from the Latin word omnis. It means all. God is all present. True or false? God is everywhere at all times in the same way. False. Otherwise, verses like draw near to God and he will draw near to you are nonsensical. If God's everywhere, then, then how can he draw near to me? I thought he's already near. No, no, James 4a is talking about not assumed omnipresence, manifest presence. Church, guys, this is at the heart of vertical church. Church is about, church was never meant to be about um, five ways to financial freedom and two tips to a brighter future. It was never, it was supposed to be about the manifest presence of God, amen? Not less Presence. And we think the problem in the Church of America is everyone is content with omnipresence. And vertical church is all about being content with nothing less than earth-shattering, window-rattling, life-altering, manifest presence. The singular distinctive that the local church has that sets us apart from everywhere else on the earth is the manifest presence of God. But here's the thing. Manifest presence is terrifying. Here's Mount Sinai, Exodus 20, says there's thunder, flashes of lightning, the mountain is smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, so they stood far off. And in Mark 9, 6, look at Mark 9, 6, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. So if our church is all about manifest presence, get him here. How can we say that? Shouldn't we be terrified? Well, we should, except there's a game-changing little detail that Matthew records in his account of the transfiguration. Matthew 16, uh, Matthew 17, verse 6, it says this, When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. Verse 7, but Jesus came and touched them saying, rise and have no fear. Vertical church, have no fear of the manifest presence of God. The first way we move from just the mundane to the mountaintop is when we stop fearing the presence of God. When we draw near to God in prayer and we say, okay, I don't, I'm not afraid of this. I am a blank check. Spend me how you please. Please. I know you are working for my maximum joy, so I don't need to be fearful about this. Take it all, Lord. Well, when we draw near to God in His Word and say, okay, Lord, there's no box that you can't blow up. Anything. There's no truth that I won't submit to. You tell me, I'm not afraid of this. Your words are spirit and life. Guys, for 6,000 years, the manifest presence of God was something that would lay sinners like us on our face in fear and trembling. But in Mark 9, up on like fear. Mountaintops, uh, mountaintop encounters with God begin when we stop fearing God. But we haven't seen anything yet. Look at verse 2. Led them to a high mountain by themselves, and he, that's Jesus, was transfigured before them. The word transfigured in the Greek is metamorphomai. Of course, where we get our word metamorphous, it just means literally to change or to transform. But just feel this. We know from Isaiah 53 that Jesus had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. So Jesus was a totally average 30-year-old Jewish man. In dating language, you would say he was a five. Okay, just catch this. At the beginning of verse two, Jesus is a five. At the end of verse two, Jesus is literally the most glorious object in the universe. (laughs) And Look at verse three. His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Apparently, Mark envisioned some grandma thinking, oh yeah, one time I used a little too much bleach and those clothes became radiant white. And Mark's like, no, as no one on earth could bleach them. This is whole different level white. Matthew says it this way, Matthew 17, 2, he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. Luke 9, 29, Luke's account says, And Jesus was praying, and as he was doing so, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. One commentator writes, If we're not careful, we think a bright light just shined on Jesus, but this wasn't a light coming on Jesus from the outside. The word transfigured describes a change from the inside. You guys, this isn't a spotlight on Jesus. This is the curtain of his skin being temporarily pulled open to show us what's truly underneath. Spurgeon notes that this was not a, a new miracle, but the temporary pause of the ongoing miracle. The real miracle was that Jesus, most of the time, could keep from displaying his glory. Spurgeon said, quote, For Christ to be glorious is a less matter than for him to restrain his glory. It is his greater glory that he was able to conceal it at all. Point two, Jesus is the radiance of God's infinite glory. That's what we see on the mountain. So God the Father is unseeable. 1 Timothy 6.6 says, God the Father dwells in unapproachable light who no one has ever seen or can see. I don't know if you know this, you will never see God the Father. He's a spirit. He is spirit John 4:24 instead Colossians 1:15 says Jesus is the image of the invisible God Hebrews 1:3 says that Jesus is God the Father's exact representation what does God the Father look like exactly Jesus So Jesus is the seeable person of the unseeable God and the disciples are seeing that they're seeing the finite glimpse of the infinite God. And what Matthew, Mark, and Luke all emphasize is that this glory is blindingly bright. And of course, that's confirmed um, in the story of Paul, if you remember that, in Acts 9. It actually did blind him. In Acts 22, Paul reflects back and says, at noon, that's when the sun is at its highest, Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus and a great light from heaven suddenly flashed around him and it was so intensely bright that it made Paul fall to the ground and he couldn't see for three days. And God told us in Exodus 33 that no one can see God's glory and live. So the glory that blinded Paul And made the disciples faint in fear is glory that is dimmed and diminished enough so that it's at least survivable. Guys, we don't have categories for the glory of God. But Luke says something very significant here. In Luke's account, he says, Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory. (laughs) How do we move from the mundane to the mountain? Apparently, church family, we need to wake up, y'all. We need to wake up. Um, There's a documentary called Sheep Among Wolves, which chronicles the revival that's currently taking place in the underground church in Iran. If you haven't seen it, I definitely recommend it. And in, in it, one couple in the documentary moved from Iran to America... And after only a couple months, decided to move back to Iran. Now, just think about that. Why would a Christian want to leave America where it's safe to be a Christian, back to live in Iran where you will get slaughtered for being a Christian? Here's what the wife said, There is a satanic lullaby in America. All the Christians are sleepy, and I began falling asleep myself. Guys, if we want to see the glory of Jesus, we need to wake up from the satanic lullaby that Christians in this country are under. Persecution has killed its thousands. Instagram, it's 10,000s. For us to move away from mundane, man-centered, horizontal, therapeutic, moralistic, phone-it-in, better than doctor Phil, boring Christianity that's running rampant in this country, and move up into real, mountaintop, window-rattling, earth-shattering, life-altering encounters with God, we need to see the real Jesus. Apparently, Peter and the disciples are falling asleep until they looked at the dazzling brightness of Jesus, and then they woke up fully and saw Jesus' glory truly. Hebrews 12.1 says, so how, how do we do this? Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run that race that is set before us looking to Jesus. You know, every night you go to bed physically, you go to bed spiritually too. When we wake up physically, we need to wake up spiritually too. And how do we do that? Apparently, by looking to Jesus. And and as we see him, we'll see him most clearly in his word. So in Mark 9, we see Jesus is the, the radiance of God's glory. And for us to see his glory, we need to become increasingly awake. Ephesians 4.13, awake, O sleeper, and Christ will shine on you. The second way we move from the mundane to the mountaintop is by simply every day setting our spiritually drowsy eyes on Jesus and letting him wake us up verse by verse from the satanic lullaby of mundane Christianity. Verse 4. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Okay, this just this is where the text gets bizarre. Moses has been dead for fourteen thousand years, uh, fourteen hundred years. Elijah has been dead for nine hundred years, and apparently they're here. They're actually here. It's not a vision. This is actually happening, and they're talking with Jesus. What is going on? You guys, this is just, I've never studied this passage before. I'm like floating this morning because of this right here. Moses and Elijah are the two most prolific prophets in the Old Testament. In the Bible, Moses represents the law and Elijah represents the prophets. And people refer to the entire Old Testament as the law and the prophets. So get this the physical representation of the entire Old Testament is standing on a mountain talking to Jesus. Just I mean, imagine what they're talking about. In fact, we don't have to imagine um, what they're talking about. Luke actually tells us, Luke 9, verse 30. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure... It's a unique word there. It's Exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. You guys, they're talking about the cross. The transfiguration is the precise moment in redemptive history that the Old Testament passed the baton to Jesus to fulfill everything in Jerusalem. Point three, Jesus is the realization of God's eternal plan. God used Moses and Elijah more than any two men in redemption. They did Jesus' visible sight to the precise minute that the Old Testament transformed into the new. Moses and Elijah talking to Jesus about the cross. What do you think it sounded like? I imagine Moses saying something like, look at you. I've waited so long for you. I told them in Deuteronomy 18, I told them that God was going to raise up a prophet better than me. And look, you're finally here. And like how the Father used me to lead an exodus to rescue his people, the Father has sent you to lead all of us through the ultimate exodus to bring about the ultimate rescue. Look at you. And maybe Elijah said something like, I remember. I remember when Jezebel was hunting me down and I went up on Mount Sinai. It looked a lot like this. And I complained. I said, God, you're wiping us out. This whole plan is going to be lost. But then you spoke to me. It was you, Jesus. And it was a still, small voice. And you said, I will, I will leave 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed to Baal. And You did. Year after year, you did, and now finally you're here. It's actually happening. All of redemptive history has been waiting for you, and you're here. God's plan is about to be finally fulfilled. And look at verse 5. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Now, why did Peter say that? Catch the humor in verse (laughs) 6. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Remember, Mark wasn't there. Peter was there. The gospel of Mark is Peter telling John Mark what happened. So imagine just this scenario. Mark's just taking notes. Peter's telling them about this transfiguration, the amazing glory of Jesus. And Peter's like, and then I said, let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Mark stops him and is like, wait, why would you say that? Tense? Like, why did you say that? And Peter's like, dude, I didn't know what to say. I was terrified. And Mark's like, I'm totally including that, for he did not know what to say. But more deeply, Peter's suggestion made three massive mistakes. First, Peter's proposal would lump together Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. And that's the whole point of the transfiguration is that these guys are not in the same category. Moses and Elijah, they reflected the glory of God. Jesus is the glory of God. Uh, They spoke from God. Jesus speaks as God. Second, the time for tents and tabernacles has come to an end. John 1.14 says the word, that's Jesus, became flesh and dwelt, literally tabernacled among us. So Peter, we no longer need to set up tents for God. God set up his own tent among us in Jesus. And third, once again, Peter is forgetting about the cross. He's like, dude, I love the mountaintop. Let's not go down. Let's just stay here. Let's build some tents. We'll worship you forever. But look down to verse 9. They have to come down. As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come? And he said to them, well, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how it is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written. The disciples say this because as good Jews, they knew Malachi 3.1 said that God would send a messenger who would clear the way for the Messiah, and Malachi 4.5 identified that that that, um, messenger is Elijah the prophet. So when Jesus said in, in verse 13, but I tell you that Elijah has come, he didn't mean Elijah had literally returned. He was referring to John the Baptist who Luke 1.17 says came in the spirit and power of Elijah. Elijah and John the Baptist are strikingly similar from their physical appearance, even their diet. Yet when the Jewish leaders asked him in John one twenty one, are you Elijah? John replied, I am not. So the whole point here, Jesus is saying, Peter, and I know you just saw Moses and Elijah, Jerusalem, and I know you heard what we were talking about the fact that I need to go to Jerusalem to suffer. But take heart, the scripture has not been broken. Elijah has come, just like God said. And they killed him, just like God said. And they must do the same to the Messiah, just like God has always said. That's why Peter's suggestion to build tents was so Peter. He's just missing it. Because once again, he's forgetting about the cross, but I want you to catch this in verse eight, verse eight. This is after they've seen Elijah, Moses. And suddenly, looking around, they saw no longer, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. So see it Christian, Moses gone. Elijah. Eclipsed. Apparently, for us to move from the mundane to the mountain, we need to look at just Jesus. Guys, if you put one eye on Jesus and one eye on Moses, if you put one eye on grace and one eye on the law, you will never experience what Jesus described as in John 10:10, 10, 10, life and life to the full. You will always be walking around just man, I'm a crappy Christian. God can't love me for this. So much of our spiritual lethargy comes from looking to Jesus and Moses. So so much of the reason why our joy is so tame and low and reserved is because we aren't looking at Jesus only. We're looking at Jesus and money. Jesus and porn. Jesus and relationship. Jesus and whatever's got to get done at the house. Jesus and, listen, Jesus plus anything equals Jesus diminished. For us to experience true spiritual breakthrough, it's not about setting our eyes on something only. It's also about taking our eyes off everything else. Hebrews 12.2 says looking to Jesus, and it literally means looking away to Jesus. You have to take your eyes off something and put them on Jesus. And you do that not by no longer looking at the normal things of everyday life. We have to look, right? We got to change the kid's diaper. We got to go to work. We got to do school. We got to write the paper. You look at Jesus, just Jesus, by seeing Jesus in and through the normal things of everyday life. If you want to get out of the mundane, dry season, Bible boredom, mundane Christianity, you need to be a grace hound. You need to always be on on a fresh scent of some grace. You need to look and seek to see Jesus in and through the normal things of everyday life, and God will miraculously move you from the mundane up to the mountaintop. So guys, we need, to, we need to have eyes as believers. We're not looking at Moses. We're not looking at Elijah. We're not looking. We're looking just Jesus. Now look at verse 7 again. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Jesus is the revealing of God's beloved son. God the Father speaks audibly over Jesus only two times in recorded scripture, uh, actually three times. At Jesus' baptism, Mark 1:11, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And now here at the transfiguration, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Let's just side note, dads, just note the percentage of language coming from the father to the son. That is, I love you. I'm pleased with you is like 100%. Let's just consider how our fatherhood is currently reflecting that. But not only does the father reaffirm, uh, reaffirm his love for Jesus here, he says, you saw it, listen to him. Guys, this is, this is more profound when we remember who is standing next to him. Moses and Elijah, we're back at verse seven. The primary prophets of God's people had been listening, uh, God's people had been listening to the primary prophets for thousands of years. And God himself just audibly declares in a way that we can all hear, the mic has passed. Listen to him. Don't listen to Moses, the lawgiver, any longer. Listen to Jesus, the law fulfiller. You don't need to listen to Elijah any longer, waiting and wondering when the promises of God will be fulfilled. All the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus. Listen to him. God the Father here, like he did at Jesus' baptism, like he will do at Jesus' resurrection, is honoring Jesus. He's putting Jesus forward. He's lifting him high. He's telling us with divine certainty, Jesus is the one you listen to. Jesus is the one you love. Jesus is the one you live for. So vertical church, listen to him. And when we do that, this text that is already unspeakably glorious goes next level. To listen to Jesus is to accept his words as true. To listen to Jesus is to apply his accomplished work to your own life and your own sin. And when we do that, just watch this. I think a lot of my job as your pastor is to remind you of your union with Christ, because we are so prone to forget. Watch this. The first thing we saw this morning is that Jesus is the return of God's manifest presence. We got that from verse 7 that says, And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. So what happens when we apply Jesus' accomplished work to our own life? 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Guys, this is why we can have no fear. Through the gospel, the clouds go from being the terrifying manifest presence of God to the triumphant vehicle that carries us into the presence of God forever. On the mountaintop, we saw that Jesus is the radiance of God's infinite glory. We saw that from verse 3, that Jesus' clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. So what happens when we listen to Jesus and apply the gospel to our own life here? Isaiah 118, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Revelation 7, 9, after these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and all peoples and all tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands. Guys, in but a short time we will be fully and forever awake to his glory and his dazzling radiant intensely white robe of righteousness will actually be on you through the gospel. Most importantly, on the mountaintop, we saw that Jesus is the revealing of God's beloved son. We saw that in verse 7 when God said, this is my beloved son. And what happens when we listen to Jesus here? Well, you can go to Galatians 3.26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons and daughters of God through faith. Or 1 John 3, 2, beloved, we are now children of God. And what we will be has not yet been revealed. But know that when Christ appears, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. In some respects, the glory that the disciples saw up on the mountain will be Your glory on the new earth. Speaking of Christians, Lewis said, quote, It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to will be one day a creature which if you saw now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. There are no ordinary people. Wow. Wow. The way we move from the mundane to the mountain is daring to listen to Jesus. Daring to believe that our future is actually this bright. Clouds are actually going to take us into his presence to be with the Lord forever. We are actually going to be these these crimson red Uh, crimson stained clothes are actually going to be traded in for dazzling, radiant white garments that if people saw today, they would drop and worship you for. We're actually going to be called sons and daughters of the living God. That's how you move out of the mundane, when you actually believe that in your bones. But you know, we said the problem with all mountaintops is you have to come down, right? Did you see that in verse 8? I'm sorry, verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. You see, Jesus couldn't stay on the mountaintop, Mount Hermon, because he had another mountain to climb, Golgotha. Jesus' mountaintop experience had to come to an end, listen, so that yours doesn't have to. Revelation 21.10, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Because Jesus now leaves the Mount of Transfiguration to climb the Mount of his crucifixion, it means, loved one, in short time, we're closer than ever before. You will be carried to the highest mountain on the new earth, and it will be a mountaintop experience that will never, ever, ever come to an end. So this morning, just dare to believe it. Don't fear the presence of God. Wake up to his glory. See Jesus in and through the normal things of everyday life and believe that your future is really this bright. Amen?